0: a special edition of our show History on the box with Katie and Allie. So normally it would just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails talking about famous women in histories but sometimes we like to talk to women who are currently making history. We have a very special guest with us here
1: today Jessica Dulong. Welcome to the show. Thank
2: you so much for having me.
1: Jessica is a journalist, a historian, a book collaborator, a ghostwriter, and if I'm correct, uh, was a chief engineer on a now retired New York City fireboat.
2: Yes, I was uh, chief engineer for the last eleven years of my twenty years, um, but the boat was retired the whole time, so that's okay.
0: Gotcha. Awesome. Yeah. It was cool because you were on like the Today Show, correct? Like showing yes. them up on the boat. <laughs>
2: Yes, I got to take the Today Show folks down into the engine room, into the bowels. Yes, That's
1: so cool. <laughs> so Jessica's here today to, off, to talk to us about her newest book, Saved at the Seawall. And before you tell us about that book, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
2: Sure. Um, I did not grow up on the water. A lot of times people assume that, um, especially because I, I grew up in Massachusetts on the North Shore, as we like to call it. And uh, and, uh, it would be an easy assumption since I lived close to the water that, you know, this was in my blood and it may have been in my blood, but I didn't know it until all of a sudden I was, uh, 28 years old and, uh, in New York city working as a dot commer at the height of the bubble. Um, and that kind of gives points a little arrow as to where the story is going next. Cause we know what bubbles do. Um, so, uh, so I was working in the empire state building and I was, um, The the little company that I was a part of the little startup um, was subletting space from this guy named David Beatty, who was one of the original purchasers of Fireboat John J. Harvey, which was sold at a scrap auction. So it was going to get chopped up and um, turn into the next batch of, you know, automobiles or something. And, um, and he invited me down to a volunteer day, to a work day. And he said, come down and get dirty. And that I was all in. Um, I was working like 17 hour days and I was making websites, which is, you know, i loved the job, but it was, it's also very intangible. And so the idea of actually doing something physical was really appealing. And boy, did I not know what I was in for at all. <laughs> I, uh, I ended up um, working uh, to cut out some unused heating pipe on the top of this big diesel engine. And I was using a sawzall, and I was in this complex maze of equipment that I couldn't even grasp how anybody could operate, never mind, like, you know, engineer to like devise and create this whole system and i just i was hooked i loved it and um very shortly thereafter i got laid off from my dot com company because it was the bubble was bursting and um and i was offered a chance to try my hand in engineering and um so I did. And that first day I'm like, you know, they spill out this bunch of numbers and, and this is a bell boat. So what that means 1931, super like cutting edge technology in 1931, <laughs> um, but not now. And um, so sometimes people have a reference for a bell boat through the movie Titanic Um mm-hmm which is basically, you know, that the commands come down from the wheelhouse to the engine room and the people actually making the changes to the engines are in the, um, in the engine room. So that was my job. And they were like, okay, you know, here's the rundown of numbers, go ahead. And my first day at the stand, I had this entire horseshoe audience of men watching me. <laughs> no pressure. Um I just like, I'm pouring sweat. I have to pee. Like, I'm just like, I'm freaking out. And, um, and, uh, and I did okay. I mean, I didn't suck totally. So they invited me back. And then then 20 years later that, you know, I had this whole huge career and I've been a writer writer the whole time too. So it actually worked out really well because I was sort of just launching my freelance writing career at the same time as I was launching my Marine engineer career. And so they worked in tandem and, um, And I actually ended up writing, uh, my previous book called My River Chronicles, Rediscovering the Work That Built America is actually about that journey, um, because there is memoir in it, but what's more interesting to me is the, the history and the history of the, the rise and fall of respect for hands-on work when, you know, (laughs) craftsmanship and all of this and, uh i 'm ending up going from dot com to turning wrenches, so i 'm going in the inverse <laughs> direction <laughs> yeah. completely opposite but yeah so that's that 's a little bit about about me and now i now i'm working as a book collaborator in addition to writing my own essays and journalistic pieces um and it 's really incredible to help people make their book dreams come true um and i'm uh, somehow i've become this um trauma magnet. So most of the projects that I'm working on are are, um, covering traumatic material. So the good part about that, many good parts, but one is getting to learn some of the neuroscience. And I know that my work at Ground Zero on September 11th has had everything to do with my interest and what led me there.
0: Well, and I think that's a great place to launch into this book. Um, so it's called Saved at the Seawall, and it is about 9-11 and specifically the maritime rescues that happened, this huge boat evacuation. Um, so can you dive in a little bit more to what was going on that day and why, this, why you felt compelled to write about this?
2: Hmm. Those are two very- very different questions um, i, I didn 't want to write about this for a very long time i didn 't want to talk about it i didn't want to get anywhere near this material um and you know it still it still takes a toll and it 's taken a toll that i 've been immersed in it for for two decades um i've done other stuff too thank goodness but um it 's a lot and um really, what happened was we reached the ten year anniversary and there was still just Almost nobody knew that this had happened. This is a remarkable remarkable moment in history and the history wasn't being documented sufficiently and ultimately what what came to pass is that my um, I felt a sense of responsibility that was strong enough to sort of overtake my reluctance and my fear of confronting this material, both you know dealing with talking people through the anguish of their time um and, and what happened with them but also um dealing with my own stuff um, from being down there and I really I felt a responsibility to the maritime community that I'm a part of because they had done this incredible thing that that is just emblematic of who we all can be right and what we can all do and I wanted that um wanted that history to be collected and shared um, and that's what brought me there um, So that was the sort of why I didn't want to and then did. (laughs) Um, What happened that day is this is the first time that anything like this to this, on this scale, to this extent, with this degree of um, necessity and success has happened. Um, Basically, within minutes after the first plane hit the first tower, um, there was, there was a disaster, there was an emergency at, at the World Trade Center. And even in the earliest minutes when people, and actually that proceeded for a long time, that people still thought this was a small plane, this was an accident. Even then, even in the condition of an accident and a small plane, there were problems. I mean, there there was, um, you know, there were fireballs, that were going down the elevator chutes, there were a whole bunch of people getting burned, there was debris falling out of the sky and lighting people's clothes on fire. It was it was an awful situation, even if you only thought of it as an accident. And immediately ferry captains and crews recognized that their boats were going to be absolutely essential to help people get off the island quickly, depending on where they were, if they were right by at the World Trade Center, that was the quickest way off. Now, that circumstance only escalated as the disaster continued because soon you get bridges and tunnels shutting down, transportation shutdowns, all of this stuff. So then you have more and more doors closing behind you if you want to get off Manhattan. People forget that Manhattan is an island. Even people who live and work in New York City, we just, you know, forget. Um, But when, you know, there are no bridges and tunnels and you're on an island. The only way off at a certain point is by boat, and and that became really important that day. Of course, this wasn't an accident, and the cascade of catastrophe just kept unfolding and worsening and exacerbating, and um, and it was really a dire circumstance. At at, at uh, certain points, there were people ten deep lined up at the railings along the seawall, um, just desperate to get off the island, pleading with with boat crews. Um, covered in dust after the towers collapsed, um, and mariners rallied completely spontaneously in a uh, completely unplanned effort, and they just went to Manhattan, and they got people on their boats, and they got them off the island.
1: Yeah, I think um, the first time I ever heard about this was maybe five or six years ago when it, it a YouTube video about it popped up on my Facebook feed, and I clicked on it. I was like, Oh, that seems interesting. And then I watched it. And I think my biggest takeaway that people forget if they weren't there um, is the chaos that was like ensuing. I think we know from hindsight, it was two planes, you know, and then done, but you have these boats coming in to is a potential war zone. So they're risking themselves, these captains and crews. What did you interview any people like that, that had those emotions?
2: Definitely. I mean, everybody did. Um, but I think at a certain point, there was this sort of switch that had to had to go off because the last thing that should happen in those moments is you have a bunch of mariners panicking. Um, mm-hmm. That That could just absolutely exacerbate the situation and make it really, really dangerous. And so one of the things that the mariners were able to draw upon is the fact that there's a lot of, even just on a a regular day on the water, there are just unexpected realities that happen. And it's, in my experience, it's like, everything's just going along, you're bored out of your mind. And then all of a sudden, can we swear on the show or not? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> all of a sudden the shit comes down and yeah. you're just, you have to somehow muscle up, some solution. So you draw upon whatever tools, resources, skills, experience, like, oh, last time I did this and that worked. And, you know, and, and that's, that's the job. That's what you do as a mariner and mariners themselves. In order for me to get my licensure from the the Coast Guard, I had to take firefighting, shipboard firefighting training. I had to take first aid training and CPR and, you know, and systems tests and all of this. So There is a skill set and an expertise and a professionalism that mariners were able to draw upon for sure. And then there was just the like, the fact that they said over and over, mariners I spoke with over and over said, it was just, it was a no brainer. There was no thinking about it ahead of time. There was no choice involved. There was just, you would have done it too. Anybody would have done it. It's just what we do. It's just what you do. When people are in trouble, you help. And we had the ability to help. And that's what they said to me over and over. And one really poignant moment for me was when um, one of the captains, it happened to be a ferryboat captain who I spoke with, he sort of caught himself in that unspooling of choice, no choice. And he was just like, well, we didn't have a choice. And then he stopped and he said, oh, well, I guess we did have a choice. But, I mean, it just wasn't, there was no question. And so I think it's important as we, now we have the power of hindsight and we can look back and we can honor that choice that was made over and over again. And just to press the point, what happened over and over and over again was that boat crews of all sorts on all different kinds of vessels, many of which were absolutely not designed for unloading passengers or offloading them safely, like not in good conditions in terms of the seawall and the railing and people climbing and people ending up in the water and all of chaos, just as you said. And, um, and what happens is they load up these passengers, and it's not easy in some cases, depending on the boats, they get them to safe shores, and then they untie lines and they come back. Mm -hmm. So they come back to the Armageddon, as far as they're concerned, that's unfolding, that is essentially a war zone, and they do it over and over again. Now, they could just like, okay, this is kind of nice over here. I think I'll stay here. But instead, they turn their boats around, and they shot straight for the island on fire. And that's what blows my mind over and over again. But then when you give it some thought, it's like, of course. I mean, of course, because people needed them. People needed them and they could help in ways that other people couldn't. And honestly, what we see throughout history is that people make this choice over and over and over again to help each other. That's what we do. It's a part of who we
1: are.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things I love that you said in the book was, you know, we're talking about people who are like breaking their rules and like, you're not supposed to have this many people on a boat, but like you have to get them off the island and It was someone you were quoting, and they said the the rules weren't broken. They were thoughtfully uh, disregarded, which I thought was such a great thing because, yeah, they weren't just blowing off the rules for no reason. They had to do what they needed to do, and as much chaos as there was going on, they were doing it as safely as possible, which I think is also a really good point to make. And um, I just have also a question. So you talk about them going back and forth, and another thing that I hadn't really thought of was – The planes hit and everything is going crazy and then they collapse and then Manhattan is just engulfed in ash and smoke. And, you know, you talk about like these people coming out looking like ghosts and zombies just covered in ash. So when these boats were coming to shore, could they see the shoreline or were they at some point kind of sailing blind?
2: Absolutely. Some, some of the vessels were sailing blind at some points during the day. And um, some of the captains were able to tell me about periods where they were operating by radar alone for some portions uh, of the day and something like, just to back it up a little, the thing to remember is that the thing that determined your fate it could be as tiny as an inch and as tiny as a millisecond right and these these time space realities changed everything for individuals and so there are as many experiences as there were mariners so some really had practically speaking a pretty smooth sailing of it and you know they were able to you know pick up passengers at a familiar berth and disembark at a familiar berth and it was out of the smoke conditions so that happened for some folks other folks we're not only operating by radar alone but at a certain point the the dust was so thick that the radar couldn't function
0: oh because God. of
2: the particulate matter so they're literally completely blind and just maneuvering as best they can and just i mean it it the the dust cloud was all consuming and that that contact and being able to continue to operate to sort of you know whatever tell yourself it's like fog or in one of my um, interviews, there's a Staten Island ferry captain named James Parisi. And he, he actually talked through that moment. It was very, it was really beautiful to hear and painful um, and very self-aware where he talks about walking across the top deck of the Staten Island ferry. And he had been in a panic and he was, you know, his body was tense. And then all of a sudden these pieces of plastic start floating down Uh, around him and it sort of carried him back to being a kid and it being like a snowfall and that's actually was my experience at ground zero too was that it just looked like a blizzard Mm -hmm. um in the middle of the summer uh you know early fall and um and the trees looked like they were decorated in a way because there was stuff hanging from the trees so he has this transformational moment on the deck, which he needs to have, and then he just became centered, and then he was able to just do his job, which was to deliver passengers safely. And I think we have more of that within us than we think we do oftentimes. Um, and really, my message with this book is that this, we don't have to point our boat's to Manhattan Island on fire. That that's not often demanded of us. Most of us will never have to do that, but there are so many other small choices that we can make to just, you know, I hesitate to use the phrase, but to lean into it, right? To 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 move forward, to
1: confront it and to make it better for somebody else. Yeah, that's beautiful. And there's so many moments in this your book where you continue to to hear that from people just the over and over good nature of like the human spirit which is something that we really need right now to think about
0: absolutely um,
1: so this has been compared to um dunkirk in terms of the size is this the largest evacuation, boat evacuation yes. of all time yeah.
2: The the maritime evacuation on September 11th in New York Harbor was groundbreaking. Well, it's kind of hard to say groundbreaking, right? It was a waterborne <laughs> evacuation that that uh, was unprecedented. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of differences between what happened in Dunkirk, which was also a remarkable feat, um, which are there are many. But in short, you're talking about 338,000 people evacuated um, in Dunkirk, and those were they were soldiers, they were Allied troops who had been cornered on a beach um, by Hitler's armies, and this was a retreat. It was a retreat, and the Dunkirk evacuation saved all these lives, which is really incredible, necessary, crucial. There were um, about 800 boats involved, and um, and it, the rescue happened in a, over the course of about nine days. It was a planned operation. Um, There's a a lot of mythology, which actually when you look sort of with a a mindset for rallying people in wartime, there was a reason why there was all of this mythology around uh, England's little ships. Um, The fact that there were fishing boats and other sailboats and recreational vessels that were involved in the evacuation was really necessary because people were on the beach and you needed shallow draft boats and there were very few civilians actually running civilian boats there were they were commandeered by military personnel there were some cases and you know they did this under fire too so there were i i mean no disrespect to the events of that day and this was just a characteristically different thing because there had been phone banks of people trying to um trying to marshal up the resources of the different vessels some of the vessels were just we can't find the owners so we're taking it they were towed across um, by tugboats a lot of times. Some of them sailed under their own power. But it was just a very different thing in Manhattan. What you have is a completely spontaneous, unplanned, unorchestrated, no, not a top-down thing. There's no, you know, German planes firing at people. But people didn't necessarily know what was coming next. I mean, James Parisi from the Staten Island Ferry. The Staten Island Ferry, for folks who aren't from New York, is this monstrous orange bright orange vessel that it's can target. just target yeah <laughs> and that's what he said he said i felt like i was moving this bright orange target through the harbor they really thought at any moment we could be next so um it was different in that way and you know i just want to give a shout out to the coast guard because it was very it would have been very easy for the coast guard at a certain point to just say like okay you know we got it we're going to call the shots here and and come in and instead what then Lieutenant Michael Day did was he ended up coming on site and determined to facilitate the successful evacuation that was already underway. And so he invited people who wanted to participate report to Governor's Island. But this call for all available boats comes out at 1045 in the morning. For two hours, this boat lift has already been underway. Now that did bring more people that did create more order. There was a check back there was more information especially as boats came from further afield they didn't necessarily know the harbor so they sought really crucial important information from the coast guard and the sandy hook pilots um but they made a really powerful choice which was to help this evacuation so help is definitely the theme here nobody was you know calling shots this is my territory um nobody was uh nobody was combating you know or or you know trying to one-up each other people really really were helping and that's it's really remarkable what rises up from us in in really dark times.
0: Yeah absolutely and with a story like this with so many emotions and people who maybe want to talk maybe don't want to talk how did you decide to lay out your book you know what format did you take? Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs)
2: It was, it was such a brutal process in every way. I, and I was so naive going into it because I had this, my, my previous book had spanned 400 years of history. And so I was like, Hey, this is just one day. It'll be fine. <laughs> and that was not the case at all because narratively, if you look at it, we have a known chronology, a known chronology of de-escalation as the day goes on. That's the kiss of narrative death. If you Yeah. Know.
0: Yeah.
2: Right you know? Um, And so, and not only that, but um, there were so many people, there were so many, it wasn't like I could just tell this story through one or two people. I just, it wouldn't do it justice. And frankly, the individual, individuality, each individual, that wasn't the point. The point was the collective action. And so while traditional narrative strategy would be, okay, you know, let's dig in deep and find out what makes this person tick and find out what they had for breakfast and all that. And none of that mattered. It did not matter what you had for breakfast. What mattered was what happened when the shit came down and you were called upon to act, what did you do? Um, And people, individuals did this for each other too. It's really important that this was not just firefighters, rescue workers, EMT, police officers, and mariners. Everybody stepped in and helped each other. And even if it just meant I'm freaking out, I'm totally panicked, but I'm going to wait my turn in line. Mm-hmm. I mean, that takes immense strength when you're literally full on panicking that this is the end of the world. So um, what that meant was, first off, I had help at instrumental moments when my book was headed straight for the rocks. An incredible editor named Nancy Rawlinson, who's a friend of mine, just came in with her cape, and she's like, it's okay. This is how we're going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Help me just like understand the big picture and get the 30,000 feet view, which I know how valuable that is. I do that for my clients, but I needed, I needed someone to do it for me. Um, so that, that's how, in terms of the sensitivity of information, it's really intense. And one of the things that I'm, um, really interested in and interested in sharing and making sure that people talk about is the fact that secondary trauma, even if you're just a, you know, historian or a journalist writing about something and writing about traumatic material, even if it's not your own, Mm -hmm. that takes a toll. And it, it's not a hierarchy of, of pain and trauma, but instead if you don't acknowledge the fact that that has an impact that, that walking with someone through their most terrifying you know horrific days that that has a consequence so i think it's really important to acknowledge that in my case i had my own ptsd stuff that i'm still dealing with and that i have to deal with every time i talk about this material and so in a sense that that helped because it meant that i could really meet people where we could meet in the same place they they knew i was down there they knew that i had a sort of tangible understanding that others maybe didn't um and for mariners I think it helped that I um that they could just speak they could just speak mariner they could be like yeah we were starboard side too and like the you know the current was really ripping that day and then the stern line pulled off and blah blah blah, blah. and I'd be like okay and I can take it in and then I can translate it for the reader and so I think in that case I kind of felt like it was my responsibility to be a bridge for this story, for these stories and this information. Um, And that's what's carried me through, is just this deep commitment to get the story right and to share it as widely as possible because of the faith that was put in me
1: by my sources. Mm. So obviously we're releasing this episode on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And as our listeners know, Katie and I, being from Baltimore, we're much closer to the tragedies happening at the Pentagon, obviously, than... Um, what was happening in New York and what was happening in Pennsylvania. Does this feel like it's been 20 years to you in retrospect? Because I know it doesn't for me.
2: Mm -mm. You know, the, the 20 years is incredibly hard to fathom because I think it's both. It just feels like forever and like a second ago for me. And I think, you know, I was actually listening to this description of this book, I can't wait to read it because it was a podcast I was listening to. And, um, this, this woman was talking about world war one history and trauma and, um, and talking about how, um, how trauma changes your conception of time. And there's a, there's some sort of carryover. So I, I think in a, in a smaller way, it's almost like, um, For me, becoming a parent, it's the longest, shortest time. It's like every single day is just interminable. And it's like, and then all the days together are over in a blip. And it kind of feels the same way to me. Maybe that's because parenting is so traumatizing. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Certainly having a newborn is pretty intense. um, But I feel like all parenting is that way. Um, So I think, yeah, I think it's a mix. I think it's a mix. And I just, I'm just really quite honestly, to be very frank, just praying that this is the the year that I can just start letting it go. I'm just, that is my goal. I just am hoping to come out the other side in
0: some different way. Mm-hmm. Well, we're just so appreciative that you wrote this book because it's a story that more people need to know because I feel like we get caught up in some of the more well-known stories of 9-11 and things like this. They kind of get they get lost and these people deserve to have their stories told. So we're just so grateful that you wrote this book. I know I was crying a lot this weekend <laughs> and it's good. i sorry. No, no, it's good. I just It's important to to reflect on it because, you know, you know, I'm meeting kids that, you know, have no idea what it was like and it's uh, a little jarring. So I'm happy that we get to share this with them and share more stories because the stories shouldn't stop about something like this. Um, so I think it's really important work. Um, so, I mean, where can people find this book in you? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Absolutely. Um, I just, I just, I was really struck by what you said. And I just to jump in really quickly to say that I think the really important thing, especially now and why we need these stories is because of we, we're, we see the cost of separating each other, uh, separating ourselves from each other. And we see the divisions. We see how dangerous that is. We see how false that is because at the end of the day, there's nothing like a global pandemic to tell you how completely independent we are. We are interconnected. We are dependent on each other. We need to work together. It's the only way. Climate crisis, COVID, the only way forward is with some form of collective action. So um, I think it's that's one of the driving things for me um, in terms of kids born now who, who don't know what this means or are able to look at it only with the hindsight of everything sort of neatly fitting into a timeline. Um, so people can find the book, um, any place you buy books. My preference is always when people choose an independent bookstore. I think it's really important. Bookshop is a great way to do that, even if you don't have the indie that's right there nearby in your hometown. And um, I, in addition to writing this book, I am also writing a lot about grief and trauma and anniversaries and things connect, connected to September 11th and also beyond, and as well as parenting. So if you have parents who are listening and all that stuff you can find on my website, which is JessicaDulong.com. Um, And I look forward to hearing from folks and continuing the conversation
1: well thank you so much for coming on the way that you talk about this with so much passion and you're frank and yet also coddling at the same time is just so lovely and helpful
2: thank you so much thank you I really appreciate that we're we're in it together we gotta we (laughs) we gotta be (laughs) kind and empathic to each other we have to or we're doomed Yeah. yeah
0: all right
1: well yeah well we're done we we've loved having you on we can't wait to talk to you more we'll get, get a hold of some more of your books that are coming yes. out we can talk about parenting and grief i'm right yes. there.
2: <laughs> excellent thank you so much thanks for your time and thanks for the work that you do